Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to Cracking Addiction. And today we're going to be talking about take-home naloxone. And we've got two experts with me today. We've got Jeremy Schmerling and Susie Nielsen. So Jeremy, I thought I'd speak to you first and we'd have a little chat about what exactly take-home naloxone is and what does it do? What is it and what does it do? Thanks, Virgil. Thanks for having me. So um, essentially, naloxone is an opioid antagonist. So it's an antidote to opioid toxicity. And when we say take-home naloxone, what we're talking about is uh, formulations of naloxone that a patient can give themselves. So all the formulations available at the moment for take-home naloxone are what's called Schedule 3 um, medications, so they're pharmacist-only medications. And what that means is a patient can go to a pharmacy and a pharmacist can hand it out when they think it's appropriate. So just to be clear, a doctor does not necessarily need to prescribe take-home naloxone for a pharmacist to actually dispense it. Is that right? That's correct. So the way it's um, it's scheduled in legislation means that it can be given out by a pharmacist without a script. And so you said that uh, take-home naloxone is the antidote to opioid toxicity. Can you explain to us what opioid toxicity is? An opioid is a, a an analgesic medication. So it works on... Um, a number of receptors, depending on which one, but predominantly the mu, the mu receptor, um, and that's how it essentially exerts activity on the on the nervous system. Um, in terms of what toxicity is, so toxicity, I suppose, is when you have too much. Is the, I suppose the layman's way of, of saying it, and it can cause some really nasty side effects. So there's some of the I suppose the really common ones that we see are things like sedation or somnolence during the day, constipation, nausea. But there can be some really serious side effects, so all the way up to essentially death. From uh, you, you essentially stop breathing, stops your breathing. So they're they're very good medications. They're very effective medications for pain, but it's really important that it's used appropriately. And of course, we're we're including heroin in this um, in this discussion on opioid toxicity. So it's an antidote to overdose with heroin, but it's also an antidote to overdose with prescription opioid painkillers, isn't it? And that's a really important point. So um, particularly we're finding with the rates of overdose, um, they're kind of, we're seeing a lot of prescription opioid overdose. So that's why it's really important that we make it clear that this is actually a, an antagonist for, for at opioid receptors, regardless of whether it's prescribed or illicit. And actually, um, there's a lot of studies that have found that the higher the dose regard of a prescribed opioid, the higher the risk. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's important to emphasize to any any clinician who's involved in or possibly involved in, in advising on take-home naloxone. It's not just for people with heroin use disorder. It's for anyone who's at risk of opioid toxicity, which includes people who are prescribed their usual amount of opioid analgesic agents. Isn't that, isn't that the case? That's correct. And in fact, there was a big Australian study um, a couple of years ago. They looked at a huge amount of data and the patients that um, I suppose ended up using. So what they did is they made, they tried to remove some of the barriers of take-home naloxone for patients. So they made it only a script. It's free of charge and you could just go and collect it from places other than just pharmacies and hospitals. So places like safe injecting rooms, and they changed the legislation to allow that to happen. And what they found is they gave the predominant patients who actually got that naloxone and used it were patients on prescription opioids, not illicit opioids. So you mentioned a number of barriers, Jeremy, and I, th I think it's probably a good time now to introduce Susie Nielsen. 
Susie, you've done a lot of work on the barriers to uptake for take-home naloxone. Would you take us through some of those? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, maybe partly because naloxone is used for heroin, sort of reversing heroin overdoses, I think there's often been a lot of kind of stigma and mythology attached to it. And so it is really important, given that most opioid deaths in Australia are on prescription opioids, that we're able to correct some of those misunderstandings. Um, so probably the most dominant misunderstanding that I hear is a concern that giving people naloxone, or really we're giving it to people who might witness an overdose. So it could be the person who has opioids themselves, but also friends and family members, so that that naloxone is available to reverse an overdose. But the concern is that, you know, maybe that having that naloxone around means that people will do riskier things. There's actually been lots of studies that have looked at um, the risks that people take, the amount of opioids that they use, um, and the likelihood that they'll have an overdose before and after receiving naloxone and being trained about naloxone. And all of those studies show that if anything, giving naloxone reduces the risks that people take, and that makes sense because you're explaining why you're giving naloxone and, and that there is a risk of overdose, there's really no yeah. evidence support that if you give someone naloxone that they'll do riskier things, that they'll use more opioids. So it's really important for healthcare providers to feel really confident that, that what they're doing, providing naloxone, providing education about um, what an overdose is and how to reverse it, is only going to help someone reduce their risk. It's not going to contribute to any kind of risky substance use. Yeah, it's the gateway argument, isn't it? I mean, I remember hearing the gateway argument for the, uh, the for oral contraception and how giving uh, contraception to you know adolescents and teenagers was actually going to open the floodgates to increase sexual activity in teenagers, but that never happened. You know, and the, these these gateway arguments, especially for safety critical interventions, tend not to actually real, to be realised, and it's certainly not the case with take on naloxone. But I, I've also heard that you know a lot of a lot of clinicians actually worry that they don't they're not qualified to actually provide the training. They don't feel confident in identifying the groups who would benefit from training, and then they don't actually feel confident in terms of delivering that training. What would you say to that, Susie? Um, look, I think that's been something that's been heard, and really the messaging now is very, I guess, as simple as possible in terms of who to offer naloxone to. We would offer it to anyone that's at risk of an opioid overdose. So they that could be someone who uses illicit opioids. It could be someone who's prescribed opioids. Um, we did a cost-effectiveness study actually looking at people who are prescribed opioids, and really that showed that the most cost-effective strategy and the most number of lives that would be saved is with the broadest sort of scale-up. So really not worrying about um, trying to find the at-risk person, but offering it to anybody that has opioids so it's in the home. And that also means that people are getting that mm -hmm. education about opioid safety. Um, I think also, you know, it can be a little bit unfamiliar. People aren't sure what language to use. They're worried about offending patients, you know, by suggesting that they might have an opioid overdose. This is, does highlight that it is important how you raise the conversation and what language you use. Um, but we've come up with some fairly straightforward language guides. And look, if you're talking to someone who uses heroin, generally, you, if you use the word overdose, they know what you're talking about. If you're talking to someone who's on prescribed opioids, it might be better not to start with the term overdose and talk about opioid toxicity or severe side effects. But what we found is if we explain yeah. to patients who are prescribed opioids for chronic pain, look, there's a medicine that you can have in your home. If you have a bad reaction to your opioids, someone could administer it to you while, while they're waiting for an ambulance. You know, would you want that? 
And we found that the overwhelming majority said that they would either appreciate or in fact expect that that would be offered to them. So if we explain it in a way that makes sense to the population, and that might be different for different populations, patients are very happy to be offered this medicine, you know, most patients. And I think it really comes down to just having that kind of simple language. Um, we often use a fire extinguisher analogy. We say, you know, we hope this is something that you never need, but it's great to have that in the home. Um, and actually, you know, we know ambulance response times have been under pressure. If you live in a rural area, you know, every minute that someone's not breathing with an opioid, there's damage occurring. So the sooner that you can get naloxone, the better. So really just having that in the home on hand is really important. I think also the complexity, people worry, what if I don't explain something right? What if they use it for the wrong person? So also really simple messaging. You can't do harm by giving naloxone. Obviously, we want patients and their family members to know what are the symptoms of opioid toxicity, so they're giving naloxone at the right time. But we shouldn't have um, patients going home being afraid that if they give it at the wrong time, something bad will happen. It will just do nothing if, you know, if, if it's not an opioid overdose, et cetera. So there are really good responses yeah, and we can yeah. simplify it. So one of the one of the issues that I've got is that a lot of patients tell me, look, doc, I'm on a stable amount of opioids for my chronic back pain that hasn't changed for years. I take the same amount of opioids uh, as I do always. There's no change. So therefore, why am I ever going to need this? So what would you say to that? And we'll go to Jeremy first. What would you say to that? What I would say is that even on a stable dose of an opioid for a long period of time, essentially, if something affects your your body, for example, if you get a, an infection or you have an injury and you need a surgery, there's lots of different things that can actually cause that opioid to become toxic for you. And it's just worth having just in case. Mm-hmm. And if you never use it, that's fine. But as long as you've got it just in case, yeah. um, you know, the worst case scenario is it sits in your drawer and you don't use it. And that's really probably actually the best case. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Susie? Is there anything else you can add to that? Yeah, look, I think we've probably done ourselves a bit of a disservice using the term overdose because we know that patients who are prescribed opioids for pain, when they hear that word, what they actually think is either someone intentionally taking too much, maybe someone um, trying to commit suicide or somebody using illicit drugs. So they often think, oh, this isn't relevant for me. So I think having that conversation around Mm -hmm. like a bad reaction or a severe side effect for opioids can sometimes be more kind of intuitive for a a patient with pain. I would also add in, look, if you've got opioids in the home, you want to have naloxone in the home. Somebody, someone could get mixed up, take the wrong medicines. It might not be you. Your health status might change. You might have a bad reaction to your opioids where previously they were fine. But it's really that sort of safety net of having naloxone in the home if you've got opioids in the home. And maybe that way it makes a bit more sense. And the other issue then, Susie, is that this, this, I think it's important for clinicians as well to, to understand the indication for advising or even prescribing take-on naloxone. And I, I have a number of uh, colleagues who ask me, well, look, does everyone who has an opioid need naloxone or is there or take-on naloxone or is there a threshold at which we really do recommend the use of take-home naloxone. So, Susie, what, what would you say to that in terms of the, the, the precise threshold, if at all, of, of opioid prescribing as indicating a take-home naloxone prescription? Right. So we've done two different studies looking at patients who are on long-term opioids for chronic pain, completely independent samples, mm-hmm. and we looked at the risk in these samples, and four out of five of those patients had at least one overdose risk factor, if not multiple overdose risk factors. 
So when you're talking about 80% of the people on long-term opioids being you know, relevant to have naloxone, at that point, we don't recommend screening for risk. We just recommend providing naloxone. If someone's on short-term opioids, maybe they're getting 10 panadine fort, probably you don't need to offer naloxone then. But really, if someone's going to have enough opioids you know, in the home to do them harm, you know, a high enough dose, it's worth having the naloxone in the home. But yeah, I think probably some of the acute um, kind of, you know, short-term small-dose opioids, we could rule um, that group out, you know, unless there was someone particularly high risk in the home. But most people on long-term opioids, we might as well just offer it. Also because it makes it simpler. We're not asking clinicians to do a lot of screening questions to work out who to give it to. Saves a lot of time. It's not going to hurt to give it to everyone on long-term opioids. And you mentioned a number of risk factors for opioid toxicity. What Could you talk us through what they might be? Yeah, absolutely. So benzodiazepine use, concurrent benzodiazepine use is probably one of the biggest. Um, and then when that example you had before about someone on a stable dose of opioids, it's not just the dose of opioids, they're on other medicines in the background. So those doses changing can be a risk factor. So um, really being on multiple medicines, often multiple sedating medicines, you know, we've got the gabapentinoids, tricyclics, there are so many sedative medicines out there. So that that's a key one. Um, people who have, you know, perhaps uh, respiratory conditions, COPD, you know, emphysema, where they might kind of already be struggling with breathing, we know that the opioids can sort of blunt that kind of respiration even further. So those would be key patients. Um, people who um, have meet criteria for opioid use disorder. Um, and then a new group that's actually kind of popped onto the rise and is really anyone that's using illicit drugs at all these days. We recommend to have naloxone because we're finding often illicit drugs are contaminated or they're not what they're sold to be. And there's been a number of cases where people who use maybe stimulants or even um, some of the synthetic cannabinoids, you know, have ended up using opioids unintentionally. So I really think, you know, we can afford to be quite generous. It's a relatively cheap medicine. It's covered by the government. So patients aren't paying for this. So really thinking about all of those uh, risk um, groups. I think the SHPA practice guideline on naloxone has a nice kind of detailed list of all of the patients you might think of, um, but really anyone who is at risk of an opioid overdose. Um, and I think we can have a low threshold given the amount of opioid harm we see in our communities and the relatively low cost yeah. of naloxone. So really, I think what I'm hearing is important to pivot away from the why should I to the why shouldn't I mindset when we're considering take on naloxone. Yeah, absolutely. And an opt-out um, approach has been recommended by a number of people. My only caution would be if yeah. we're going to have an opt-out approach, we do need to make sure we're telling patients what it is, why we're providing it. Um, it's no use in somebody's home if they don't know how to use it, if they don't know what the signs of opioid toxicity yeah. are that we're looking for. It's not complicated to explain yeah. those things, um, but really making sure that we have those yeah. key conversation points covered not just providing it in the same yeah. bag as the discharge opioids without that conversation, because that's really where the magic happens, I think, having the conversation around safer use of opioids, what that risk might be. Mm. That really means that people are taking home an effective intervention and not just an extra medicine in a bag. This is a great opportunity to move back to Jeremy. So, Jeremy, can you talk us through the, the formulations of uh, take-home naloxone? What would a patient actually receive in the bag when they're leaving hospital? Yeah, so really there's two key formulations for take-home naloxone, so naloxone a patient can self-administer. So the first is a pre-filled syringe. Uh, the brand is Prenoxed, is available, and the other is a Nixoid nasal spray, so that's a nasal spray device. 
Uh, the Nixoid in particular is the one we, we're recommending in hospital, um, and that comes as a, a, pre-filled, uh, a pre-filled nasal spray. There's two in the box, um, and the patient uh, can get it over the counter at their pharmacy. Okay, and Susie, I believe you've got a Nixoid spray there. Yeah, it's actually a different brand that I got from uh, Norway. I was recently at an Aloxone conference in Norway, but you can see it's quite a simple device. It's really you just depress this plunger. It just has one dose in there, so we do tell people not to prime it, but it's really one dose in one nostril, and you can repeat that in the other nostril sort of two or three minutes later if there's no response. So in terms of the messaging to patients, it's quite a simple device to use. The Pronoxad um, that Jeremy, Jeremy mentioned is a little bit more complicated. You need to attach needle. Um, it's got five doses and you don't actually want to give all five at once. But what we tend to find is the people who prefer that formulation are people who are used to giving um, injections, often people who would inject drugs anyway. And so they are a bit more um, comfortable with that. We don't usually find that that's the formulation that people who take opioids for pain are interested in or receive. Um, so, but having options is great and having two formulations is, I think, very helpful. Yeah, I often wonder how, you know, any carer of mine, were I to be on prescription opioids, how any carer of mine would actually have the wherewithal to open up a box of Pranoxad and undo the syringe and put the needle on and then inject it into my anterolateral thigh. It, I think I think Nixoid is a great advance on uh, Pranoxoid, Pranoxad for simplicity of use in um for in the, in the community now there used to be a vogue of actually putting naloxone vials that you can also get naloxone in a vial but there used to be a vogue of actually just trying to squirt that up the nose but we know that actually the concentrations are in in normal naloxone liquid are not high enough to actually be reliably administered intran- intranasally so really it was only with the advent of this very concentrated solution that we can actually now use uh, Nixoid nasal spray. So, Jeremy, t- take us through the the kind of the the, the kinetics and dynamics of of naloxone uh, Nixoid. What what happens? What can we expect to happen? So, when you spray it in the nose, it, it works pretty quickly. So, it's absorbed as quickly as sort of one minute after administration. But that peak concentration takes a little bit longer. Mm. So, I've seen a few different graphs showing how long it takes. Most of the um, information I look at says about eight minutes to peak. But I've seen graphs that show it could be up to 15 minutes, so it takes that little bit longer to really get that full effect. And again, that's that's a really important counselling point to patients and their family that once you spray it, it's not going to be an instant effect, and just to be looking out for that, I suppose, effect at that sort of eight-minute mark. And I suppose the other key thing to, to emphasise is that there's two points. Firstly, that the dose in the nasal spray might be higher than the dose in the intramuscular injection, but they are all they are effectively bioequivalent. And the second point is that the nasal spray is as good, if not better, at, at reversing the signs of opioid toxicity as the as the injection. Would you agree with that, um, Jeremy? Yeah, I would. And everything I've looked at supports that. Susie, would you have any other comment on that? Um, look, I think also there is, um, you will get a slightly faster onset if you inject it, but just the time required to set that up, you're going to get a, a much mm. faster overall effect if you've got a very simple device that people yeah. can use without kind of getting confused or stressed. So absolutely, I mm. think the intranasal device is the way to go in the community. Now, Susie, you're, you're, you're an expert on fentanyl. And I often get asked, you know, does naloxone work for fentanyl overdoses? And, and also, does it work to reverse stiff man or, sorry, 
stiff chest syndrome. Can you talk us through those issues? Sure. So there's actually been um, really mixed results with fentanyl and naloxone. And I think some people have been concerned that it either doesn't work or it doesn't work well enough. Um, actually, what we understand now is that probably the reason that fentanyl has been reversed by naloxone is it wasn't given soon enough. So often people will respiration will be depressed um, and they'll enter into that kind of opioid toxic or overdose state really within minutes. Um, and so if naloxone isn't sort of on scene, if someone doesn't have it in the home already, there's not that much time to respond. Now, if you compare that to heroin, we usually have around 25 minutes or so that someone slowly enters an overdose state, so you've got a lot more time. So those overdoses are easier to reverse just because you've got that bigger opportunity. But there are plenty of studies showing that naloxone is absolutely able to reverse fentanyl, particularly if it's given sooner. Um, within the first 60 seconds of a fentanyl overdose, there are actually kind of physiological changes that are going on that mean that it will be harder to reverse that overdose if you wait. So really the message isn't that it doesn't work, it's that it works, but you need to be, you need to have it on hand and you need to administer it quickly. So I think if anything, we need more naloxone out there with you know the possible risk of fentanyl in the heroin market. Um, because if because if it's not on hand, people have to go and get it, or if you're waiting for an ambulance, um, then that's when we lose lives. And I think that um that's often been the case that people are giving multiple doses but the person really is effectively already dead. And it's a very kind of sad thing where that life could have been saved if naloxone was just on hand at the time. And, and that's really what's happening in North America with the large number of fentanyl deaths. And are we seeing the same level of fentanyl entering the community in, uh, in Victoria or Australia? Um, look, fortunately, to date, we're not. We see very occasional kind of clusters where we might have these sort of novel synthetic opioids, sometimes fentanyl, sometimes um, what's called the nitazines. It's a family of equally sort of highly potent opioids, just not structurally similar to fentanyl. Um, they have become mm. very dominant in the market in um, almost all of the US now and also in Canada. Um, we are quite sort of nervous that that will emerge in Australia. I can't see why it won't, but to date we haven't seen it. But I do think we have yeah. this moment in time to upscale naloxone and really upscale our overdose prevention information in the community, you know, because it's likely that yeah. it will come. And we already have so many lives lost every year with opioids without fentanyl. You know, why wait? Yeah, why wait? And so, Jeremy, I mean, we're running out of time, but I was wondering if you'd consider what final message would you give to any prescriber who's contemplating take-home naloxone? My, my message would be, my messaging, I suppose, would be to try and normalise it for them, to make it less about, I suppose, mm. why the patient is using the opioid and more about the fact that it's on a high-risk medication. And this is a really simple, effective yeah. safety initiative um, that's really, you know, easy for the patient to get, worthwhile for the patient to have. And if, you know, I, I really like the idea of this opt-out system, you know, it should be patients get it unless for whatever reason they decide that they should not get it. And Susie, what message have you, of hope have you got for the community? Um, look, we've got, you know, literally decades of evidence now that lay people can effectively administer naloxone. Um, and that where it's been upscaled, it is able to reduce the harm with opioids. So we've had this great opportunity with Australia now having it. It's free for patients to access, you know, at all community pharmacies as well as many other sites. 
So, you know, it really is a golden opportunity here that we can upscale this and, you know, hopefully turn around some of the very um, sad statistics that we've had with opioids for quite a long time in Australia. Jeremy, Susie, thank you for your expertise, both of you. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Cracking Addiction.